I'm Alex Mosett, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And today, the large tech monopolies uh, have continued to wade into the troubled waters of, you know, monopoly woes. Anytime you have Microsoft casting shade on your monopolistic tendencies, then well, I mean, clearly they're biased, but you know there's something going on here. Uh, so you had an exec at Microsoft saying antitrust bodies need to review the Apple App Store. I mean, uh, Microsoft clearly has not gotten over the fact that Apple beat them uh, in phones when Microsoft had Windows Phone for years and years and years. Microsoft bought Nokia for like $7 billion, and I think that's almost... A worthless investment now. Microsoft has a little bit of bias when this exec comes out and says, hey, you know, regulators uh, come and look at Apple. But I think the interesting thing with this is, you know, what Apple is encountering today is almost exactly the same thing as what Microsoft encountered about 20 years ago in the 90s. Literally almost exactly the same thing. And, and I think because of what Microsoft went through, in the 90s, it basically set off a chain of events where they um, started to move away from or, or started to move more into enterprise businesses, right? Um, where they're selling to business customers as opposed to consumers. And really, it was when they were selling to consumers. I mean, they still do sell to consumers. They bought LinkedIn recently, all these kinds of things. But it was their consumer businesses, which were the target of these uh, antitrust claims, similarly here with Apple around the Apple App Store. So what really went on here? There's a huge outcry because um, uh, the founders of Basecamp, which is a, a another business tool for kind of like project management, right, was launching an email app called Hey. So this is the app as it exists today. It's Hey, and it's an email app. Uh, you know, pretty straightforward. They've got some features that are supposed to warrant the $100 annual price tag for the app. They submitted the app to Apple. It got approved. Then they were submitting some bug fixes and they were going to go kind of live with it, right? They kind of done a soft submission to the App Store, had been approved. They did some extra bug updates. That got rejected. And then this whole series of events went into, uh, into effect. And basically, uh, Apple rejected the app because they said that, um, well, here, here's the quote. So Apple told me its actual mistake was approving the app in the first place when it didn't conform to its guidelines. Apple allows these kinds of client apps where you can't sign up, only sign in for business services, but not consumer products. Okay, what does this mean? So you basically, you downloaded the Hey app. This was the original experience. You download the Hey app. It has you sign in. Um, I believe there was a link to, this was the original uh, V1 kind of screenshot of it, right? So you basically, you had to sign in, otherwise you couldn't do anything in the app. And I think like if you click this help me button, it would link you to uh, to hey.com where you could pay a $100 membership to to use the service, right? So basically the app was not functional unless you had an account. And if you didn't have an account and you downloaded the app off the app store, there was a way to navigate to hey.com to heyhey.com without paying Apple their 30% fee, which is what they take 
on any in-app purchases. That's really what it comes down to is, is Apple saying, hey, if I bring you new customers, right? These are people that don't have a Hey account. They haven't already signed up for your service through your website. But right, if Apple's saying, if I bring you a new customer or a new user and that user hasn't signed up for your service and I help you, hey, acquire a new customer, paying you $100 a year for an email app nonetheless, should Apple deserve 30%? Should they get $30 of that transaction? That's really what this comes down to. When you look at it through that lens, I'm actually kind of on Apple's side in the sense that if Apple is bringing me a user who's not an existing customer, and then I am now driving that user to sign up outside of using Apple's payment infrastructure, even though Apple brought me the user, you know, doesn't Apple deserve some take of that transaction? I think it does. Now, here is where Apple gets into trouble is they have double standards and they contradict themselves. So, you know, basically their explanation here was that the Hey app should have never been approved in the first place. Uh, This guy Schiller is one of the top executives there. And he said, we want Hey to change the app so that it can be functional if you don't have an account, right? So what Hey has done, fast forward to today, they have allowed you to get a free uh, email for 14 days Um, as a trial program. And then I would imagine you can go sign up for a full account at hey.com, still circumventing Apple getting their 30%. I actually think this was the wrong resolution to it because, you know, I think the point here is, are you allowed to link to hey.com to try to convert these users that aren't actual paying customers and turn them into paying customers? Can hey.com link to their site and, and, and deliberately circumvent the app store process. That's actually not what changed here. What changed here is Apple saying, hey, we want you to give an experience to users if they don't have your account. We don't want like a a zombie app or a non-functional app on the app store. Where this, where the irony is this, is there are a bunch of business apps that, I mean, this is literally how it works. Basecamp included, these guys' original business, but think of Salesforce, right? Or any Microsoft apps, or many of many Microsoft apps, maybe not all Microsoft apps, but you know, you download Salesforce, you can't use Salesforce unless you have an enterprise account. Uh, so what's Apple going to do? Ban Salesforce from the App Store? No. So now Apple's saying, hey, because you're a consumer app, not a business app, um, you know, you're not allowed to do this. Now, the problem is none of the App Store guidelines actually spell out this distinction between business and consumer. So that's contradiction number one. They're kind of like making up these delineations on the fly. Although they sound reasonable on the surface level, this actually, none of this is even in their terms of service. That's a problem when you are a monopoly, which they are. They're really a duopoly with uh, with Apple uh, and Google, Google's Android. So. That's problem number one. Problem number two is there are are consumer apps that do have no experience unless you have an account. Hmm, what would that be? Oh, like Netflix. (laughs) So there are what now, now Apple says there are reader apps. So now Apple is making another distinction of category of app, these reader apps, where if you, you know, if you don't have an account or if you haven't 
uh, purchased an account already, the app is not functional. And Apple is not going to try and, you know, force you to force Netflix to, you know, pay Apple 30% of a Netflix membership, right? So that's another contradiction, contradiction number two. Um, anyway, you know, this is a real, when you actually look at the brass tacks of the Hay case, I can understand where Apple is coming from. And I actually tend to agree with Apple. Where Apple's getting into hot water in this is their terms of service, their app store guidelines don't, don't delineate these uh, kind of boundaries that they're talking about, which is a problem when you are a duopoly, when you have rejected many apps because you say, hey, you don't follow the guidelines. But now you're kind of saying, well, we're rejecting this app because there's a guideline, but it, it isn't written down, but it exists. So, you know, where is the line? Um, and that is, you know, that is really the crux of this. So long story short, Apple has come out and said, we are going to let developers challenge the App Store guidelines. Again, the irony in all of this is the guidelines didn't exist for the reason that Apple was kind of saying that they were rejecting this app. So again, this is kind of like a catch 22. It's like you can repeal or you can challenge the guidelines, but what if the thing isn't even in the guideline, you know, already? I think this goes to one of the two key cruxes, one of the two key things of of how producers and suppliers are taken advantage of by platforms. One of them is on the take rate. So, you know, uh, is the platform arbitrarily increasing the price, the take rate that it takes from the producer. Uh, Apple has kept it fixed at 30%. Uh, they have lowered it in certain other product categories, by the way, but generally it's 30%. And they've stuck to that pricing model. Other platforms like Amazon, they fluctuate the, the take rate based upon product category, based upon season, like the holiday season. Um, Uber, Lyft, they fluctuate the take rate from drivers. So that's probably the biggest grievance amongst producers. The second biggest grievance would be, hey, you penalized me. You kicked me off the platform. You didn't, you didn't accept my app. I need a forum to you know, challenge this. Uh, how can I rebut this? And very often, you know, if Apple rejects your app, I mean, there's no, there's no rebuttal process. There's no one you can go to. You can't call anyone up. Um, these guys, hey.com, you know, they got a little bit of special treatment because they have a following on Twitter because they have had successes in the past. So they have a different level of access to Apple and to cause an outcry here. So anyway, now Apple is giving a little bit and saying, yes, we're going to allow developers to challenge these app store guidelines, which which is a step in the right direction. You know, when it comes to these overarching questions around, hey, what is Apple allowed to charge for and try and take 30% for or not take 30% and so on and so forth. And now the EU has come out and said they're launching an investigation into Apple's App Store rules. Where the platforms get into trouble is when they vertically integrate and they are directly competing with their producers. You see this on Amazon competing with third-party sellers very aggressively. But you also do see Apple vertically integrate and compete with their developers as well. The EU complaint here specifically lists Spotify, right? Spotify versus Apple Music. Very clear uh, battle on that front. We've seen this before in the ebook and audio book category, kind of if you rewind the clock a number of years ago when Apple wasn't, say, as dominant in that space. But you know, if you think about the Kindle, 
um, and and Apple Books, you know, and and that rivalry there. So there's there are a lot of uh, cases where the platforms vertically integrate and they get into trouble. And that's what Microsoft got in trouble for 20 plus years ago was with the browser, um, you know, bundling of Netscape versus Internet Explorer and Microsoft favoring Internet Explorer on their operating system, Windows, and bundling that in versus now competing with, you know, Netscape and other browsers unfairly. That vertical integration is where these platforms really get caught. That said, Apple does offer an email client. Do they make money off of it? No, it's kind of just, you know, a a part of the core offering. So is there a level of vertical integration there? Yes. Um, Overall, if I was to rank the, uh, you know, the level of hot water that Apple versus Amazon is in, it's very clear Amazon is in much hotter water purely because they are much more vertically integrated. They are much more aggressively competing directly with their producers, with their third-party sellers than Apple is. Apple does compete and there are issues. But if I was to rank the level of issues and the level of kind of abuse and systemic uh, kind of cram- cramming down, right? That systemic competition inside of the inside of the platform right, of, of Amazon versus Apple, it's very clear. There's much more systemic competition built into the actual org structure, right, where you have product managers overseeing these categories at Amazon. They own a P&L for that product category, right? So if they can go cut out the third-party seller, source the product directly, you know, sell more of their white-label products, their P&L is better. So there's much more kind of systemic built-in a vertical integrated competition with these producers on Amazon than there is Apple. Um, but, you know, again, there are certainly areas where once you hit that monopoly scale, as Apple clearly has, um, that you are naturally on the fringes going to have these blowups between developers being taken advantage of or having kind of these double or triple standards um, and, and the platform kind of just shrugging it off until there's a, a, a blow up and this blow up has now set off a chain of events. So we will see uh, where this goes. So the last topic is we're almost at the one year mark for, for winner take all uh, we've got, we've got a great audience on, on YouTube and, 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 and the different platforms, TikTok included. And we take snippets of the show and we post them on TikTok. And so we took a snippet of maybe a few episodes. We did a clip about Zoom, where Zoom, um, Zoom literally released a press release, like literally on their website. And the press release was, you know, here's the NPR. Zoom acknowledges it suspended activist accounts at China's request, right? This is NPR. Uh, here, Zoom confirms the reports in a blog post Thursday. This is on their website. From Zoom, from Zoom, saying, hey, China told us to take down these activist accounts that were using Zoom to kind of, you know, have conversations that were negative about about the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. So we spoke about this and we kind of dug into it, posted a clip on TikTok. What was really interesting is after it hit a certain threshold of of views on TikTok, you know, which we have we have the best. commenters in the business. If you look at our view to comment ratio for for our audience, for our platform nerds, it's okay to be a nerd. I'm a nerd. 
Many of you are nerds too. Nerds are actually cool these days. So for our platform nerds that watch the show, you guys get engaged. You leave a lot of comments, which is awesome. And I love that. And so we get a lot, we had a lot of comments like, oh, this is great or spot on. Yeah, this is interesting. Then after it hit like 5,000 views on TikTok, a switch flipped and we started to get all of these semi-aggressive comments that were basically calling me a liar, working for a Zoom competitor, fake news, spreading like falsehoods about what happened with, uh, you know, with this Chinese story. So like here, I mean, this is literally from Zoom's website. In May and early June, we were notified by the Chinese government about four large public June 4th commemoration meetings on Zoom. Chinese government informed us that this activity is illegal in China and demanded that Zoom terminate the meetings and host accounts, right? So literally, Zoom is saying, Chinese government told us to cancel this stuff. And then basically, they go on to say, we did it. Whoops, we messed up. Our bad. We're going to improve upon this, right? Let me show you some of these, uh, some of these, so like comments, right? So this this user, <clears throat> zero evidence that the Chinese government that you know, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to read it word for words, right? So you can see the grammar is all messed up. Zero zero evidence that Chinese government wants Zoom to kick off anyone. You are simply spreading rumor or just did paid propaganda. Okay, user 04167508. Um, you know, who is this person? Oh, let me click on this person's profile. Oh, this person has zero followers, zero likes, and is following zero people. Hmm, kind of seems like a bot account. Oh, well, here's another one. This guy works for a Zoom competitor. You can see he is talking lie, so he keep on touch his hair. I do touch my hair from time to time. It doesn't mean I'm a liar. World in Cha, who has zero followers, zero likes, and is following zero people. What is going on here? We had easily over a third of the comments uh, were from accounts just like this. And if you click into the profiles, you know, generally you can pretty much pretty easily see that most of these are kind of like goose egg, you know, zeros across the board accounts. And so that's curious. A few of the accounts did have, you know, some followers and had posted material. And so I started to dig into this to try and figure out, I mean, what is going on, right? Like the video didn't blow up, didn't have hundreds of thousands of views, but when it hit 5,000, very clearly this stuff started to happen. So let's look at some other circumstances here. This is from June 12th, 2020. So just a couple of weeks ago, Twitter takes down China-linked accounts spreading disinformation on Hong Kong and the coronavirus. Social media sites said that 23,750 accounts were spreading geopolitical narratives favorable to the Chinese, to the Communist Party of China. And these were removed. And then another 150,000 accounts designed to boost that content were also taken down. So you got over 170,000 accounts. You have 23,000 of these that are like pushing the narrative. And then you got another 150,000 that are, you know, liking it and, and sharing it and doing other social interactions on it um, so that it, you know, it, the algorithms pick it up, right? And then push it to the top of the feed. They know how to work the algorithms. What we experienced on TikTok is a very minuscule, minor example 
of a much broader initiative that is going on here. And if if our video with 5,000 views was enough to kind of trigger the alerts in this system, you what you have to do is you have to take a step back and think, wow, I mean, these were humans, right? So that person that said he touches his hair, they watched the video, right? That's not a bot. That's not an automated response, right? You had to watch the video and see that I touch my hair, right? So the interesting thing with that is you have to have humans that are here watching this stuff and commenting. And the reason to do the comments is so that when people, other people are streaming and just kind of like flicking through the comments, that they get this perception that my video talking about, you know, uh, this Zoom issue and, and the Chinese government in a negative way, it's a negative thing, um, is wrong or it's fake. Now, if you dig into that, you can probably try and, you know, make up your own opinion and, and say, oh, well, you know, mm, these guys are, you know, clearly kind of trying to coordinate something. I don't know if I really buy this. But the point is on the surface and for most people probably looking at that video and just flicking through the comments that they're not going to go much deeper. So now you're helping to shape the perception and the narrative here, which is very interesting. And honestly, I give the Chinese credit because this is, think about how you do this at scale. This is one video with five, 10,000 views. Think about how many other videos fit that same criteria. And this is TikTok. This isn't even Twitter or Facebook has had similar issues or YouTube, right? Where we've spoken on the show about how YouTube algorithms were trained. The YouTube algorithms were trained to take down videos, which were critical of the CCP because enough of these bot accounts had trained the algorithms and, and flagged the content. So now the algorithms just said, we're going to take this stuff down because there's so many of these kind of reports and, and claims submitted. It's honestly ingenious. But this isn't just robots from the Chinese. These are humans. And I think it has to be in the scale of hundreds of thousands of humans. Hundreds of thousands. Now, there's no article that I have to show you which says, yes, hundreds of thousands of Chinese people are actively um, writing content on U.S. US based content platforms, probably international too, to shape the narrative and perception of China to foreigners. But that's exactly what's happening. And, it, and I, it's got to be hundreds of thousands of people. If you think about the scale that this is operating at, this isn't just a random event on my little video of five or 10,000 views. This is a systemic coordinated initiative. Which is frankly impressive. Um, let's look at one other article. This is from February of 2018, so more than two years ago. And it talks about the environment, the cultural environment in China when it comes to social media versus, say, the United States. In China, there's an expectation to have fake followers and fake accounts. Chinese platforms support fake accounts. Fake followers are a fundamental part of Chinese social media platforms. Even though many of them do periodically clean out fake followers, the number of fake followers continues to rise. The platforms don't want to control bots. 
Bots boost daily act- active user and monthly active user numbers, stimulate ad spend, and make platforms look healthier than they are. Hmm, interesting, right? So it's kind of in the platform's best interest. Both Weibo and WeChat sell engagement packages starting from 25 RMB. I think it's like six RMB per dollar. So that's like four bucks per thousand impressions. But at those prices, many would prefer to purchase high quality fakes from a third party that guarantees 50 comments, likes, or reposts for one RMB. So it's saying I could pay $4 for a thousand impressions from the platform, or I could pay 15 cents to a third party who's going to get me 50 comments, likes, or reposts, right? And those who don't pay the platforms for engagement have their reach throttled. Without the paid sponsored system from Weibo, the organic reach of a post could be as little as 10% of a user's followers. Um, so now this is saying that a lot of Chinese brands that want to advertise in the United States, so they say, hey, I, I want an influencer who has 100,000 fans on Instagram to post, to publish a post in exchange for a free product. This is a, uh, this lady is from a, an ad agent, like a social media agency in New York. And so she says, well, no, no, no. If you want an influencer that has at least 100,000 followers on Instagram, you got to give them more, a lot more than just free product, right? And this is the expectation uh, difference. In China, for an influencer to have 100,000 followers, that's chump change. That's like, that's, you know, baby numbers. Why? Because the expectation is that a lot of those 100,000 followers are fake. Versus in the United States, the expectation is that you don't have fake followers or you haven't, as an influencer, paid for any fake followers. Now, obviously some do, but to get 100,000 legitimate uh, followers is, is, is very hard to do, right? Or it's much harder to do. Um, and, and, and it's a very different kind of perception in the U.S. versus China. So um, here's the last part, which I thought was pretty interesting. Paying for fake engagement is seen as necessary to create a snowball effect for posts to go viral. This is in China. Regarding the inflated numbers of followers on Chinese media, you know, when the river rises, boats go up. So this is the expectation. You have this, you have this ecosystem, you know, kind of everyone's in on, everyone's kind of in on the shenanigans. The platforms are in on it. Third party uh, businesses are in on it. The influencers are in on it. Everyone's in on the game. And this is how the game works in China, where you have these fake followers and you have this kind of systemic uh, influence on these posts. Now, we take one more step back on this. I talk a lot on the show about how platforms need to regulate less um, <clears throat> and, and curate less and you know, let more content through rather than less content. And this is a great example. So if you say, if you apply that same rubric and you say, okay, Alex, well, you know, should you take down these accounts? Like, you know, you shouldn't take down these accounts, right? If, if, if you want more content and you want more openness, then, you know, what are you going to do? How do you apply that same um, kind of honest assessment of how do you regulate and curate your ecosystem from these fake accounts versus uh, real users, but they're posting content that might be considered you know, uh, abusive or harmful or people just have issues with, with the nature of the content. Right. Um, and I think the one rubric that you can apply very evenly is, you know, how can you use user verification? How can you, um, 
you know, actually ensure that, you know, this one user is, is actually tied to a person. Facebook has done a pretty good job at this in terms of um, putting much stronger uh, verification around your account, right? Like it's much harder to have multiple Facebook accounts. They actually require a good amount of information for you when you sign up uh, for that account. And so, you know, going back to there's two really main mechanisms of how do you uh, uh, how do you regulate usage on the platform. It's one of the four core functions of any platform business is that uh, regulation and, and kind of nurturing your ecosystem. How do you do that? And there's two parts to that. One is uh, gating. What users do you let into the ecosystem? And then the other one is usage. How do you regulate the usage once they're on the platform? So, for example, you know, this to me would say, if a lot of people are just spamming you with fake accounts, how can you put stricter gating rules in before you come in, right? And if you put stricter rules when you come in, then that means that if you do take any action on them once they are in, it's going to be much harder for them to come back in if you kick them off, right? Twitter has a very lax, you know, kind of anyone can sign up for a Twitter account. It's very easy. So you see a lot of this being relatively more rampant on Twitter than Facebook. Facebook still has problems, but there's much tighter gating on Facebook side than there is Twitter side. I think when you get to that platform scale, that monopoly scale, you want to shift towards having much stronger verification requirement to sign up. Why many platforms don't have strong requirements to sign up in the early days is you don't want to put a lot of barriers uh, for access, right? You want people to easily sign up, get an account, and participate and create value on your platform. But once you hit scale, once you hit monopoly scale, you know now those, now those network effects work for you rather than against you. So now people want to get into your, to your closed garden, right? And now you can put much stricter requirements around access to gain, to gain entry to the garden. So I think that is a natural shift that if you are in that content platform monopoly bucket, you should be shifting towards much stricter uh, access and sign up rules, right? To, uh, to, to get access to the garden. That will ultimately help you naturally, hopefully have better uh, engagement and, and interaction once you're on the platform. Now, on the usage side, if people are f- posting these comments on my TikTok video, and, and their comments, by the way, are, are clearly meant to alter your perception of reality, to make me seem like a liar and say that I'm spewing fake news when literally Zoom has said, this is what happened and we're sorry we messed up, right? Is is very clear cut case doesn't get any more straightforward than this. In that scenario, those comments should stay on my TikTok video. It is fine. People need to be able to make up their own mind about what's real and what's not, and who do they trust and who do they not trust, and how much faith are they going to put into a random comment that they see in the feed uh, versus not. Right, and people need to build up that. Muscle memory, you know, that is now how you need to operate in the 21st century. You can't just take everything at face value. So, you know what? I'm fine with fake comments on my videos. I don't think they should be taken down. Let them live. Let people make up their own minds if they want to believe me or not. That's fine. It's up to them. Um, Now, if you have a bunch of these fake accounts where, uh, you know, it's one person, they got five different accounts and 
you need to put stricter verification rules to weed those people out. And if you can identify like, hey, I'm looking at your IP address and I can see your phone is now logging into 10 different accounts back to back to back. You know, all these apps get all that information from your phone. They get your GPS. They get everything from your phone. So you can pretty easily see, hey, this is like one user and they have 10 different accounts and they're kind of posting a bunch of the same stuff on this video. Very easy for the platforms to see that. That's a very different story, right? Than taking down content, which is is clearly false. You got to let that stuff persist. You got to let that stuff be out there. That's kind of just life and people got to learn to uh, figure out how to weed through that. Now, last note on this, China is an expert at this. I mean, their sophistication with how to influence people's perception in the 21st century. And again, my estimate, it could be more. Hundreds of thousands of people actively working on China's behalf to alter perception outside of China. You can't see these videos in China. You can't see my stuff in China. It's not allowed. So this is about altering other people's, not the Chinese people, other country, other people's perception of China. Frankly, it's genius. Now, you can get grumpy at them about whether it's right or wrong, whatever. Tactically, it's genius. And to think about the scale that they're able to operate this thing at, I mean, this is no like drive-by kind of shoddy operation. This is a finely tuned engine. You got to give them credit. Whether or not you disagree with it, it is impressive what they've been able to do. And they've been at this for years. The US, for example, has nothing, nothing that can compare to this. Um, it's, it was, you know, it was a real shock to me. And I'll just end it on this. It was a real shock to me. I talk about this stuff all the time on the show. It was just really interesting to have gone through it personally and see it firsthand. And then, and then you know, it, it really just kind of clicks. All the light bulbs go off when, when you think about what we talk about on the show. And this little TikTok video um, triggering some people. So more to come on this. Uh, certainly, this is not going to go away. I think this stuff is only going to get, um, you know, much more evolved and aggressive as time goes on. So thanks for joining us on Winner Take All. I will talk to you next week.